Warning, this episode contains spoilers, coarse language, and... In all seriousness, the subject of this episode is a film about rape, torture, and other acts of brutality, so please proceed with caution. And if you'd prefer to skip this episode, we totally understand. Do we want to get into the episode? We may as well. We should probably get started. <laughs> I don't want to talk about these movies either. Yeah, I'm like, let's just like an episode where we don't review a movie because I don't want to. Hey, let's do a retrospective on all of Wes Craven stuff. Oh, that means we got to talk about Last House on the Left. Yeah, we'll skip that one. It's his first one and he doesn't particularly care for it. So we'll just skip it. It's fine. It's fine. Just skip it. Just skip it. Okay, so the hills have eyes. <laughs> Welcome, everybody, to part one of the latest episode of I Hate Love Remakes. I'm Noel. Joining me, as always, is Evie. I have nothing clever to say, because it would not be appropriate. This is a film that just kind of, like, saps the will to discuss things. Yeah, I'm like, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to... As I tweeted last night, I'm like, why did I take a shower before watching Last House on the Left when I know I'm going to feel like I need another one after? Yeah, it's like, you should almost wait and be like, and now I'll go shower. <laughs> so anyways, joining us once again from our wonderful My Bloody Valentine 3D episode, just because we need to make her watch something worse. Uh, <laughs> We're monsters, apparently. Everybody, please welcome back, Mac. Hi, I'm Matilda, that bitch who tweets in haiku. I'm pleased to be here. You're Mac. No, shut up. Well, the person who used to tweet in haiku, I haven't seen you around in a while. In like five ever. Five ever? Well, Evie, you've gotten pretty sporadic on Twitter yourself. Yeah. So there. <laughs> Anywho, yes, apparently you guys felt the need to drag me in here and watch torture porn on top of really bad 3D stuff like last time. This is not torture porn. Thank God. And it wasn't 3D. Yeah. Imagine if the original had been in 3D. Oh, dear God. It, no. David Hess's face coming at you in 3D. No. Yeah, we're oh, just going it, to... It, it's not torture porn, Mac. Oh, no. Well, it is because it tortures the audience. Yeah, but that's not really what... Torture porn is more like Saw. You're reveling in it. Yeah, torture porn is where you're reveling in it. What I like about Last House on the Left... And we'll get into this when we get into the films. What I like about Last House on the Left... Oh, by the way, did I mention we're doing Last House on the Left? <laughs> uncomfortable you guys what i like about it is that these films both of them are like if you want horror fine we're gonna give you horror and we're gonna make you suffer through it yeah it's literally a horror movie because it's horrifying yeah it's not a standard slasher it's not torture porn because it doesn't revel in this it's really uncomfortable if you're sitting there watching going i don't want to watch this there's no joy to be taken from what's going on there's no, no like how that dumb bitch died you don't get that moment it's not a roller coaster ride yeah, exactly. Okay, well, let's go with there. That works. It's courtroom <laughs> jury duty. Yeah. Yeah. At, like, the worst crime trial ever. Exactly. And you can't leave. <laughs> I don't want to see the evidence of the case. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so we're talking about Last House on the Left, the very first film written and directed by Wes Craven. What do we all think of Wes Craven overall? Uh, he's touch and go. I like Wes Craven more than I like his movies. Yeah, I, I'll give him that. With a few exceptions. I love Scream. I absolutely love Scream. I think him and Kevin Williamson make a great team. Mm -hmm. Williamson brings out the best in him. But most of his stuff is, even the films themselves are hit and miss from scene to scene. Mm -hmm. His films are always kind of uneven and like every great thing in them is kind of anchored by something that's not so great. He comes up with great ideas and I like the philosophy of his works. I just don't find him, he's kind of sloppy. See, I would tend to disagree on parts of that because I think there are movies of his that really are great films from start to finish. Can you give an example? Red Eye. Oh, okay. Good, good, good. <laughs> Red Eye I had issues with. I didn't. Oh, I liked the final film, but it had problems. 
See, I like Red Eye. I'm aware that something like Nightmare on Elm Street, which we're going to be doing, I, I mean, I like it. And I'm aware that it does have issues, but the issues that people might have with that movie for my brain, they're not an issue because I'm like, okay, well, this is because this, this is because this. And I basically fill in the gaps for myself and I'm just like, it's fine. See, he does have a lot of films that I like, but I think Scream is the only film is that I love. Really? Scream is really good. I do like Scream 2 and Scream 4. I like Cursed, even though it has problems. Cursed is a mess. (laughs) I like My Soul to Take. My Soul to Take is kind of interesting because it's kind of almost like his entire career squashed down in one movie. I really like The People Under the Stairs. Oh, what was the voodoo one he did? The voodoo, voodoo. The one with Bill Pullman, uh, something snake. Uh, the oh, the snake, snake and, and the rainbow. The serpent oh, yeah. and the rainbow. Okay. I mean, that one, he has some issues too, but I really like it. I like Wes Craven, and I'm always intrigued to see a Wes Craven movie, even though there's a lot of them I kind of come out going, well, that didn't quite work. I appreciate the effort. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well done. If this were Tumblr, you would give him the gold star that says you tried. Yeah, like Shocker. Shocker is a horrible movie. <laughs> but you tried, and you made something that was horrible in a very interesting way. <laughs> or Vampire in Brooklyn. Okay, see, Let's I, not discuss I can't talk that. Brooklyn, shall we? It's <laughs> not. And it should also be mentioned that, you know, we typically only talk about the writer and director of movies, but we should also mention the producer of this was Sean S. Cunningham, who at the time actually had a bigger career than Wes Craven did and was actually a pretty steady director throughout the 70s to the mid 80s. And then he created Friday the 13th and his career kind of tanked after that. <laughs> He did Friday the 13th and then did a couple other films after that, and nobody wanted him to make any movies anymore. Surprise, surprise. Which is funny because there's so many people who are like, Friday the 13th is so amazing, and I'm like, movie fucking sucks. I think Friday the 13th is, among the 80s slashers, it's one of the okay ones. It's not a great movie, but it's a crowd-pleaser slasher. Well, I think the thing is I don't really like slasher movies unless they give me someone to like or care about or root for, So, Mm -hmm. and Friday the 13th really doesn't, so... Yeah, and at this time, Shang Kang had already made two movies, one of which Wes Craven worked on as an editor and production assistant. Mm -hmm. And they were like, let's make a horror movie because horror movies at the time were easy to distribute with the Grindhouse drive-in market. Mm -hmm. And they were like, okay, we'll each come up with an idea and whoever has the best idea, they're the ones who get to direct it. And Wes Craven came up with Last House on the Left. And it should be stated that after Last House on the Left, it took four years before he was able to get anyone to let him make another movie because it was so controversial. Yeah, what was it? Witch? And the Hills Have Eyes was the next film. Oh. There was wow. the TV movie, Season of the Witch, but that was a few years later. Okay, yeah. But in the four years between Last House and Left and the Hills Have Eyes, Wes Craven worked in the porno industry. <laughs> he teamed up with this one guy who was a director and producer who ended up actually producing a lot of his films afterwards, like Hills Have Eyes, Nightmare on Elm Street, and a few others. And those two are still friends and co-producing stuff to this day. But yeah, Wes Craven worked as a cameraman and an editor in the porno industry. And he even made his magnum opus porno movie, Angela the Fireworks Woman, which is a fascinating film that's worth tracking down if you want to see Wes Craven immediately after Last House on the Left. Because it's a porno movie that's also an existentialist character study of two siblings locked in the bohemian lifestyle of New York in the 70s. And it's a trippy intellectualist porno movie. There's nothing I have to say to that. And one thing that needs to be said is Last House on the Left was meant to be a porno movie. A lot of the actors, the two girls, at least the guy who plays Weasel, came out of the porno industry, and it was intended to be a hardcore X-rated sex film. But like two days into shooting, they realized, I think we're probably pushing things too far, and that's what they decided to pull back on. But everyone who signed on to the film went in expecting it to be a graphic hardcore movie. And certain themes that were meant to be explored through that, he then explored in Angela the Fireworks Woman, though without all the violence. (laughs) So I just needed to bring that up as a little prologue in terms of where Wes Craven was when he made this movie. I'm learning so much, and I've only been here for, what, five minutes? (laughs) Yeah, and he refuses to talk about his porno career. He will say, yes, I did make some films, and I will not talk about them. But anyways, I should probably move on to the synopsis of the first movie. Anybody got anything they need to say before we do? Nope. I quit. I'm done. I'm, I'm you leaving. can't. No, hey, yeah, hey, I hey. can. What? If we're you going know, down this. You know my mom. I quit. Oh, I'm done. I know, no. your, I know your mom. Yeah, I know you know my mom. And my mom would not be all like, you can't quit. Mom, let me do what I want. <laughs> whatever. Whatever. I will say Angela the Fireworks Woman is porno magnum opus. 
It's not out on DVD or video, but you can find it easily online through streaming. There's even a lot of Wes Craven fans who don't even know this thing exists. He wrote and directed it under the pseudonym Abe Snake. It's streaming online. You can find it easily. Fans of his work should check it out just in terms of the evolution of his career following Last House on the Left. It's not an easy film to watch because it is an incest melodrama. See, that's the best way to describe it. It opens with incest, and then the brother and the sister go in two separate directions and then reunite at the end. Oh, okay. (laughs) He decides to go into the priesthood, where he discovers all the sexual frustrations of the priesthood. And she decides to go into the Bohemian New York Life Society, where she discovers all the sexual frustrations of the Bohemian New York Society. And then they reunite at the end. So, that's that movie. Let's talk about this movie. I quit. Nope. I quit. I don't care. I quit. The Collingwood family live in a lakeside home at the end of a road outside the town where the father works as a doctor. The night before her 17th birthday, Marie Collingwood borrows the family car and hits the... uh, Mary. I thought it was pronounced Marie. No, it's Mary. All right. The night before her 17th birthday, Mary Collingwood borrows the family car and hits the nearby city to attend a concert with her friend Phyllis. That's not pronounced Phyllis, is it? God, I hope not. (laughs) That'd be awkward. Hoping to score Uh, some weed, they encounter a young man who leads them into an apartment where the door is quickly locked behind them. Inside are the recently escaped sadistic murderers and rapists Krug Stillo and Weasel Padowski, who are looking for some new girls to play with when their violent female cohort Sadie gets tired of putting out. The young man at the door is Junior, the awkward son of Krug, who his father keeps in line with a heroin addiction. Phyllis is raped that night, and the next day the gang load the bound girls into the trunk of their car and head north towards Canada. Their car ends up breaking down right on the edge of the road that that Mary... I keep wanting to say Marie. Right on the edge of the road that Mary recognizes is leading to her home, so they take the girls into the woods where they're forced at knife point to commit acts of violence and degradation on themselves and each other. When Crew goes off to the car, Phyllis makes a run for it, leading Weasel and Sadie on a chase through the woods so Mary can have some time alone with Junior to talk him into helping them escape. She even gives him the peace symbol necklace her father gave her as a gift. Phyllis makes it to a cemetery on the edge of the road, but she's stopped by Krug and Weasel and Sadie catch up. The three goons stab the girl, first slowly, watching as she crawls away and bleeds out, then viciously, stabbing again and again and even disemboweling the girl after she dies. Throughout all of this, the local sheriff and his deputy have taken down a missing person report from Mary's parents, then later recognize Krug's reported car as one they passed on that road. They go through a series of quote-unquote comical misadventures in their quest to get back to that scene. Mary has convinced Junior to run away with her to her parents' house, but they're stopped by Krug, Weasel, and Sadie, who are all smeared with Phyllis's blood. Krug throws Mary to the ground, where he carves his name in her chest and rapes her, and then everyone is left in a daze as the full events of the day sink in. When Mary calmly walks to a nearby pond and into the water, Krug and the others quietly follow. Then Krug pulls out a revolver and guns her down. The gang changes and cleans up, and as the night approaches, they go to Mary's home with the story of their car having broken down. As they're taken in for the night, it doesn't take long for the gang, posing as plumbing insurers, to realize exactly whose house they're in, and Mary's parents start putting together clues when they find bloody clothing, overhear snatches of conversation, and see Mary's necklace on Junior, who's going through severe withdrawal. Investigating the nearby area, they find Mary just as the girl dies, then return home plotting revenge. While Krug and Sadie sleep, the mother lures Weasel out back, where she seduces him into a blowjob where she bites off his dick. Krug and... (laughs) Well, that's what happened. Saying that sentence. (laughs) Saying half of these sentences are just, I didn't want to have to write these. (laughs) I I, I feel you here. (laughs) Krug and Sadie shoot out of bed only to find the father there with a shotgun. They get past him, but he's booby-trapped the house with damp, electrified carpets and shaving foam patches on the floor. While he and Krug duke it out in the living room, Junior gets the drop on Krug with a gun, but Krug bullies the boy into committing suicide. The father then attacks with a chainsaw. Just as the sheriff finally arrives, the father cuts Krug down and the mother slashes Sadie's throat. The end. So, Evie, do you recommend this movie? (laughs) Just remember to repeat yourself. It's only a movie. It's only a movie. So that's a maybe? Gonna be alright there, dear? (laughs) (laughs) I have no words! (laughs) No! Why don't I start off for once by just saying that 
On the one hand, I can recommend the film as succeeding at exactly the type of film it wants to be, but it's such an ugly film that I don't know that I would ever want to watch it again or that I would say, hey, here's a movie you should watch. Exactly. Yeah, that's pretty much my feelings exactly there. What is it with you picking up everything today so far and then Evie and I having nothing left to say because you kind of get it? Well, I felt after that I needed to at least clarify and hopefully, I don't know, it seemed like a position everyone would agree on anyways. Mm-hmm. Pretty much, yeah. It's a film that I think is worth watching if you want to explore the Grindhouse era. If you go in knowing what the film is and wanting to experience it, yeah, I think you will come out enjoying it. Because I think there is some skill on display, there is some intelligence to it. And it's also interesting to explore as part of Wes Craven's career. But just in terms of wanting to find something to throw on on Friday night, no. (laughs) Yeah, it's just, no. No. So it's hard. It's like, yes, I recommend it, and no, I don't. What would you two at least say in terms of how it is at being the type of film it wants to be? I think it's close. But for some strange reason, I feel like it misses something. And I was watching the movie and I was trying to figure out exactly what it was that felt like it was just missing from the overall structure, from the overall story. I couldn't tell if it was something in the acting, something in the writing, something in just the way everything was set up. But it just felt like there was one thing that just wasn't there or wasn't right. And it bothered me. Did you guys feel that at all? Or? I did. What I think was the problem was there was a discordance to it in terms of tone. Like it would be extremely silly and playful one moment and then extremely horrendous the next. Yeah. And it felt haphazard in the way it would jump the tones. It didn't feel like it was doing so entirely through intention. I mean, there yeah. is a very amateurish quality to the film at times. Maybe that's it. Yeah. And also there are like some scenes that are like really well put together in terms of how they're filmed and how they're edited and all that stuff. And then you get other scenes that they feel like the scenes between sex and a porno. They're just kind of lazy in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's that unevenness to the film, both tonally and in terms of quality. And I think that is what gives it that level of discordance. And the banjo music. Yeah. Dear God, the banjo music. That was David Hess, the guy who plays Krug, did all the songs in the movie. I like the song. Shut up. He's actually, um, he wrote songs for Elvis. I mean, he was a very popular songwriter in the 50s and 60s. I happen to actually like the song. I like the unsettling. Like, it's... I like it in moments. The music itself is... The music to the songs, it's kind of this happy and upbeat music. But the lyrics are so fucked up. And I like that. Yeah, I mean, I like the songs. I just don't think I quite like the placement of all of them. There are times when I really liked it. I thought the music actually was an interesting break from tension. And also really just kind of gave an odd mood to things. And then the music outside of the songs, though, was kind of weak, though, where it was just like this kind of synth organ, just these random notes. Yeah. The songs were weird, but I kind of liked them at times, and I didn't kind of like them at others. And that was David Hess. He only acted in a few things here and there, but for the majority of his lifetime, and he only just passed away a couple of years ago, he was a very famous songwriter and producer and musician. And he was always kind of regretting the thing he then became most famous for was this movie. <laughs> he was a really scary Krug, though. Yeah. Yeah. He had that sadism and all that stuff, but he also had that charisma. Mm-hmm. And he just had a, a really neat look to the character, especially when he had the cigar in the mouth and mm-hmm. walking around with a machete in the black T-shirt. I will say that when they're doing the voiceover, when you get introduced to Krug and Weasel and Sadie and Junior, and they're doing the voiceover, and I'm just like, and I love the fact that it's just like, and also they killed the German Shepherd. Because if they killed two guys, I'd been like, I still like them, though. Because until they start with the raping and the murdering, yeah. they are like that weird level of like fucked up people that, you know, have kind of formed this fucked up family unit. There's almost a John Waters cartooniness to it. Yeah. And I'm enjoying that. But of course, they had to also kill a dog because yeah. bastards. Was it just me or was there the consistent use of animal imagery? I mean, there were dogs everywhere. There were a few different cuts to ducks. There was cats. There were frogs. And it was yeah. just these cuts. I don't to know if just that was intentional animal. or just like cut to random shit. Part of the cinema verite style of filmmaking that they had. There was a very improvisational nature to this script. Like a lot of those voiceover bits were kind of like put in in post. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just that they killed a puppy, but that Sadie kicked a dog to death. Yeah. That Sadie literally kicked a puppy to death. 
It wasn't a puppy. It was a German shepherd that they would have I know, used I'm to saying puppy in quotes. Okay. <laughs> but yeah, that she literally kicked the dog to death. There's such a cartooniness to it of, like, Weasel, he's a serial child molester and peeping Tom. Or how Krug's past crime was to two nuns and a priest. Yeah. <laughs> I would like to two nuns and a priest. I'm just like, well, the priest, considering what's been going on with the church the last few years. Uh... There is this kind of tongue-in-cheek absurdity to just the way that they're presenting it. Yeah. But meanwhile, they're supposed to be these horrible people. But meanwhile, they're just totally normal. When you first meet them in that hotel room, yeah, yeah. they just seem like those weird neighbors you have. Yeah. It's this weird John Waters comedy. Yeah. But I think that also points out the fact that when you have fucked up people who do fucked up things, a lot of times those fucked up people look completely normal. No, and I like the idea of humanizing the villains in this. I mean, even after they commit the horrible crimes, we still have the kind of comical scenes of them at the dinner table with Mary's (laughs) parents and the whole thing of them just chatting in the bedroom of like, oh, yeah, they're all born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Mm -hmm. I like that there's still that level of these people, they aren't animals, they are people. Yeah. Yeah, and there was Sadie's malpropisms where she just couldn't get those words right. Mm-hmm. And just little character things throughout that entire scene. Sigmund Freud. And the, what was it the a phallists? Yeah. A and then you have the scene where her and Krug are having sex in the car while Weasel is talking about, oh, we got to do something bold. We got to do something that'll shock everyone. We got to <laughs> commit the sex crime of the century. And I'm like, um... Okay. I mean, it's like you could imagine that being like the opening line of like a crazy Benny Hill style trailer. I was waiting for the Benny Hill music whenever the cops came on the screen, frankly. Yeah, and then there's the cops. And I love how Martin Cove, the guy who plays the deputy, is the only actor in this who really went on to have a strong career. He was the bad guy in Karate Kid, the sweep the leg sensei. Ah. He did a number of canon action movies in both the 80s and 90s, and he actually still pops up and stuff. But yeah, that that stupid guy playing the deputy was the only actor in this batch of people who actually went and got a career afterwards. Really? That guy? That <laughs> guy. not who I would have picked to have a career, but, yeah, you know. Because Sadie went on to become an executive at NBC. Oh, good for her. I liked her hair. Yeah, the two girls came out of porn, went back into porn, and one of them is now a school teacher. The guy who played Weasel was actually one of the most prolific porno director and producers of the era. The parents were just local character actors. The sheriff was a local character actor. And the guy who played Junior, I can't really find anything on him. Just a quick little edit to point out that the guy who played Junior was actually a stand-up comedian of the time. He disappeared off the face of the earth. Was eaten by a crew. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, getting back to the point, though, with the sheriff and the deputy, it was just like, I can understand needing to lighten the tension while all that stuff is going down in the woods. But is Benny Hill really the... (laughs) Yeah, the whole, like, chicken truck thing was Mm -hmm. like... What the fuck was that? (laughs) (laughs) Oh my, the guy who played uh, Weasel died this year. Oh, okay. Oh. According to IMDb. Well, I know he was like in his late 40s when he did this already. So, I mean, like David Hess, who played Krug, when he passed away two years ago, he was already 75. So, I mean, these guys... Actually, he was 75, too, when he died, Brad J. Lincoln. Okay. So, he was even younger than Krug. Wow. Yep. Maybe he was just an Anderson Cooper premature gray. And John Stewart. Don't forget John Stewart. (laughs) But, yeah, I mean, I like the intention behind a lot of the humor. I just think the humor almost goes too far in the wrong direction. Yeah. And it's misplaced, almost, because there is those cuts between Marie's mother and father being Mary. all happy together. Mary. Yeah, with the icing on the cake. Yeah, yeah, with the icing on the cake and all that. And then all of a sudden, raping time. Rape o'clock. Yeah. Which, I get what they were trying to do with that, oh, no, but it's totally not didn't. working. And that's how I feel about a lot of Wes Craven films, is I see what you're trying to do there. You don't quite have it right. I don't think it's quite as bad here as it is in Sutton, like Shocker, but it is definitely noticeable and it kind of gets away with it because of the kind of amateurish nature of the film. It kind of gives it a little bit of charm, but it makes it feel even more amateurish. Yeah. Speaking of immature, was I the only one who Amateur, not immature. He said immature. Oh, I said amateur. Yeah. Fuck, I'm sorry. But on a related (laughs) note, speaking about immature. There we go. Amateur or immature, was I the only one who was a little weirded out by the dad can see her nipples and points it out? Well, I just didn't like that he kept staring at him. Yeah, that was uncomfortable. Like he should be like averting his eyes uncomfortably or something. But I came from a weird family. We would do that, okay? Well, I mean, I understand it from, like, you know, that was that period of the late 60s, early 70s, where there was the whole burning bra movement. And I understand how that fits in, and it was, you know, a different time and culture clash, but 
Still, he didn't need to keep staring at him. It's true. He didn't. It's like, what's this about tits? This sounds like back in my old sailor days. Mm-hmm. And tits everywhere. Just tits and nipples and boobs. And, you know, it's a never-ending parade. You know, I was actually surprised by there was a lot less nudity in this film than I thought there would be. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of it that's kind of obscured or like just out of frame. and Yeah, it's not gratuitous. Or it's just not the main focus of the shot. Exactly. There was a lot of it where the focus was on the faces of the girls instead of their bodies. And I, I like that. I'm really glad that they actually did change their mind on making this our hardcore sex flick. Because I like that there's that level of obscurity there. Because it almost makes it even worse. <laughs> but in a good way. In, ter- in an intelligent way. This would have been a very uncomfortable film if they had put all of that up in your face. Yeah. And it's already a very uncomfortable film. Given. <laughs> And if you want to see it even more uncomfortable, still go watch Angela the Fireworks Woman, which actually does have a graphic rape sex scene and is extremely uncomfortable to watch. So that's the second time you've advertised that one. Well, it's (laughs) nobody ever sees it. Nobody knows about it. Nobody discusses it. But it's there. Yeah, you know what? Spumoni ice cream exists, too, but I don't feel the need to try it. I just I find it interesting, though, that he decided not to do that. He decided it was a bad idea to do that in Last House on the Left. So then he gets to his next film and he's like, I'm going to do that thing I thought was a bad idea. Yeah, but it was a porno film, so it's not like he really cared. I know, but it turned out to be a bad idea. So but anyways, Eh. I keep bringing it up because these two films in my mind are kind of interlocked in a battle of the death, like thematically, stylistically, in terms of where he was in his career. They're like two incestuous siblings. That's a good choice of words. (laughs) Truly, you are a wordsmith. We bow at your superior skill with the English. It also seems like we're all kind of avoiding talking about the elephant in the room in terms of. So this is a film about rape. It's a film about rape revenge, but the rape. Uh, what I like is that there is a sense of misdirect to the film. Like, if you pay attention to what the film is showing you, he's trying to set it up as there's opportunities for the girls to escape. And you always think, okay, they're going to escape. They're going to get away. They're going to get away. And it pulls a psycho halfway through the film of, no, they're both dead. Yeah. And then it becomes a story of her parents. No, but the thing is, that was what stood out for me. It's not that it was wrong or weird. Or what I felt like was off in terms of structure. It was just what I noticed was unique about the structure. Was you have this setup and it's relatively short. Mm-hmm. Getting from that to the point where the girls have been taken. And there's the raping and the killing and everything. And I feel like that takes up the majority of the movie. And if I'm remembering correctly, it's only the last 20, 15 Mm -hmm. minutes of the movie where it's actually the revenge. It's like, I think, 16 minutes by the time the girls end up in the apartment. And yeah, like 25 minutes for everything after Mary gets killed. So, I mean, the majority of there the movie... There is quite a bit more movie, like, to go after Mary's dead, but... Yeah, but it actually doesn't take that much screen time. Yeah, it's true. There's a, quite a bit in there, but it doesn't take much screen time. And when the parents actually set out to get their revenge, we're only talking, like, the last 10 minutes of the movie. That's true. Because they do a lot in a very oh. short amount of time. Mm-hmm. One of the things I like about Wes Craven is he does know how to stick a lot of story and a lot of ideas and themes into like an hour and a half running time. Mm -hmm. His stories do have a density to them that I like. They can make it feel like you're getting your money's worth. If what you want to get your money's worth with is is graphic rape for an hour. Yeah, I was about to say, um, (laughs) we're talking an hour of rape and murder. It, well, that's the thing. It's not an hour of rape and murder. Well, because you have the act- sheriff scenes. You have yeah. those scenes where they're driving down the road. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are other scenes happening. And there's it's also... Just, the thing that sticks out is the rape and the yeah. murder. And there's even the scenes of degradation where they're like, you know, forcing her to piss herself, forcing the girls yeah. to hit each other, which I think even makes it worse. Yeah. Like that. Just holy shit. Yeah. Agreed. And then there's just the scene where they're like telling the girls to strip down and do each other. And Mary's just bawling and Phyllis is just like, just go with it. Just get through it and everything. It's just like, oh, my God, I don't want to watch this. Yeah. I don't want to watch this. But at the same time, it does work that way that you would never at any point be sitting there watching that and feel it all comfortable. Yeah. And I, I do like the fact that it get like in that kind of I, I, the fact that it keeps you, you appreciate. Yeah, I appreciate the fact that it continues to make everyone continue to feel really, really uncomfortable. I do like how the movie is intentionally trolling the audience. 
Mm-hmm. It's like lulling you in, expecting like a fun and games grindhouse film. And mm-hmm. then it's showing, no, if this actually happened, it would be fucking miserable. And you're going to be forced to witness the misery. And it's pulling a psych out on the audience. And I kind of like that. It's this weird kind of meta knowledge in terms of how to structure a film that was one of the hallmarks of Wes Craven's career of always being aware of what an audience is expecting and misdirecting. I will give it that, but it still makes it a very uncomfortable film to watch. Very much so. But it's like it's also successful because that's what it intends to be. It can't say it's wrong because it's doing exactly what it wants to do. Fair enough. And there's actually something I appreciate about that. Mm-hmm. It's not something I want to... Like, this was probably the second time in my life I've watched Last House on the Left, and I wasn't looking forward to it. Because the first time I watched it, I was, like, in the middle of my teen slasher craze, and I'm like, this isn't what I wanted. (laughs) This is not what I signed up for! Yeah, and watching it again here, I'm like, yeah, it's still not what I want. But it is what it is, and it is what it sets out to be, and it, it has a very specific purpose, this film, and I think it achieves that purpose. So it's like, I can't say it's a bad film that's a failure. I just don't want to watch it again. Just to kind of bring it back, Mac, you and I have both seen the movie Irreversible. Yes. Oh, God. I was making that comparison in my head as well. Yeah, and it's yeah like... I was thinking that in Buys Moy, too, yeah. But yeah, I, I actually own Irreversible. I think I watched it exactly one time. Six or seven years ago, it's sort of a movie played out in reverse and that you get like these vignette scenes and it's all in reverse of what happens. So at the end, you get to the happy part that you would normally have had at the beginning. And the rape scene in that is totally fucking brutal. Mm-hmm. It is that same oh. sort of thing where at no point are you like comfortable watching that. And eventually it's just really, really painful to watch because you know what happens to her later on. So her being all happy and everything is just sad. But that is a brutal rape scene in that movie. What I like is that it's a shock film. It's meant to be provocative. It's meant to shock the audience. But it's not like Hostel or Saw where it does so in a very juvenile fashion. There is an intelligence to it. I think Hostel actually does have an intelligence to it. Hostel does too. Well, Hostel, yeah. Hostel, I don't think is as shocking as this. But then again, I think because it is playing it somewhat more Mm tongue-in-cheek. But you're right. There is a certain intelligence to this particular film. There's moments where I'm watching it. And I mean, I saw this more so particularly in the remake. But specifically in this version, there's the point where Mary says that little prayer when she's sitting behind the rock. Mm -hmm. And then she goes into the water. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, this is a baptism. This is Mm -hmm. a reassurance of her purity and innocence before she's killed. Cleansing. Yeah. Whereas her friend didn't get that at all. That's what I like is that the two killings are very different. I think part of it is reflected of, you know, Phyllis was more the, she was already the world-weary type, the experienced one, the one who was more defiant. Mm-hmm. The one who actually went up to Junior and asked to be a pot. Well, and she was also the one who was directly challenging Krug, and that's also why she was the one who was raped first, because he was showing his dominance over her. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think her death is more the violent one, because she's the annoyance. She's the one that they want to kill. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think they revel in her death so much. Whereas with Mary, she's the innocent. And I think that's why when they finally defile her and break her, there's that deflation afterwards where everyone is just kind of like... there's that silence. Mm-hmm. We just broke something that we probably shouldn't have. And that's why when, when Krug shoots her, it's more in a despondent, putting her out of her misery type way. There is this psychology. To, I mean, just that moment where after raping Mary, where they're just standing there and they're just like all the energy is drained out of them. It's not fun anymore. Yeah. But then what's interesting is that they don't keep building on that. They don't keep building on these are people who have been changed by their experience. No, when they go back to Mary's house, they're pretty much the same as they always were. And there's an Mm -hmm. honesty to that. They had this moment of reflection and then they got through it and just kept being themselves. (laughs) What I found really funny almost is how quick Mary's parents were to be all welcoming to these random people. They were at the beginning so concerned that, ooh, Mary's going to the slums and whatnot, but these... Yeah, but they don't live in the slums, so therefore anybody coming around there would not be slummy. Yeah. Oh, well, clearly. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but I like that their suspicions are up. They do have their radar on. But they weren't at the start. Well, you notice from the first moment they're looking at Junior, from the first moment that they're in in the living room, they notice Junior is standing out. 
Mm-hmm. And they're starting to pay attention. And during the dinner scene, they're paying attention and they're yeah. catching little things. And the way that they're eating and everything. Yeah. yeah. And how it's like these people aren't who they claim to be. It's pretty obvious because they're not carrying themselves as insurance salesmen. And also that, that old movie trick of, oh, they said plumbing and insurance at the same time. Well, yeah. we sell plumbing insurance. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, and then there's that gradual putting together the pieces. And I kind of like that it doesn't take them that long. I mean, you can make an yeah. entire film about two people realizing that the people in their house are the ones who killed their daughter. But this is a film that that's not the main story. So they only take 10 minutes. And I do like the fact that even like when she sees the necklace, the peace sign necklace that Junior's wearing, she doesn't like... She, flip out. It, yeah, it's like she doesn't flip out. And the thing is, she still goes and looks through the suitcase because I'm like, that necklace is something that I'm like, anyone could have that. That's not that unique but then the two parents run off into the woods at night and find their daughter they just know to go there too like okay and then it's a bit of an awkward cut there because when they come across marie she's visibly moving but then in the next shot there's a kind of dubbed over voice line of she's dead we didn't make it in time i hear that this is a script that's very different from how the film turned out because mm-hmm. there was that kind of improvisational aspect of it. I wish I could find that script just because it seems like Marie is supposed to be alive. Mm-hmm. Mary. And then they, they have an awkward cut and a dubbed over line of, she, she's dead. Well, she does also tell her parents who did it. Mm-hmm. So it's like she could have died in the interim. It's like she had that last bit of energy that saved up. But then we like have, she's on the couch at home under a blanket. Mm-hmm. But we don't see her aside from just these couple little quick shots. So it's like, is she supposed to be alive in those scenes in the original cut? And then they just kind of like tweaked it. I understand why they would still have her in the on the couch wrapped in a blanket, because despite the fact that she's dead, you'd still want to comfort your child, even no, though they can't feel that warmth. The, their body is cold. And so it's like it made sense to me. We'll get to this in the remake, but it's kind of then interesting that the remake picked up on the threads that it did with Wes Craven still having creative input on it. Did the remake go a direction that this film intended to, but then decided not to? Because it feels like there was an intent to go somewhere else and it got kind of covered up in post. And so in the remake, they were able to We're not talking about the remake yet. It's okay. Okay. We can just at least briefly mention that bit. No. Okay. We'll wait. We'll wait. Yeah. I've held off so everyone else can hold off. This is all about me, goddammit. I'm sensing a lot of rage. We'll wait until a month later when we discuss the remake, because as we know, parts one and two always come out like two months apart. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sensing a lot of rage being ready to be released on your part, Evie. Am I correct in this assumption? Not particularly, no. Oh, well. My radar must I have some issues, but... We'll get to the remake. We'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah. But I think the the thing, too, with the original is it looks grimy. I mean, that kind of helps it because, I mean, at some point you can see on the lens where there's like a speck of dirt or something that they just didn't happen to catch when they were first shooting the scene. Going back to the amateur nature of the film. And that's the thing is the amateur nature of the film is I'm not entirely criticizing it when I call it that. I mean, there are some definite things that kind of go wrong as a result of it. But for the most part, I think that does actually give the film the feel that it needs. So do you think that that was actually an intentional stylistic choice? Or would you argue that that was more just a side effect of something else? I think it was a combination. I think stylistically they wanted it to be rough and raw. And this is something that you can see in Wes Craven's next few films. That is a style that he maintained. But there is an amateurish aspect in terms of his handling of it that I think you can draw both pros and cons from. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a combination. I think it's an intentional style, but it's an amateurish use of the style. But there's also an intelligent use of the style. Still, an amateur intelligent use of an amateur style. I would say it's an intelligent use of a style that he's inexperienced in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that sounds up well. You can see that there's a lot of very intelligent choices, but there's also a lack of experience in terms of the fine tuning. But just, I mean, in general, it kind of looks like someone had just like rubbed some grime on the print or something. And it's just like, it looks dirty. The thing is, like that kind of also made me feel unsettled, which I liked in air quotes. So again, that sort of intelligence in the use of that style. Yeah, I mean, I think it supports the film again, but it gets back to our thing of in terms of what the film is... It is used well and it supports the film well, but it's still a very ugly, unpleasant film to watch. Yeah. It's ugly and pleasant in a way that helps what it is, but I still don't want to watch it. Yeah. It's like it serves the story and does what it needs to to move the story along, but I don't want to watch it again. 
No likey. No. I appreciate that I have experienced this film. I don't like that I had to watch it to experience it. Yeah. But again, that's not to say the film is bad. It's just, it is what it is. Mm-hmm. That's probably the best way you can sum up Last House on Left. It is what it is. Yeah. And it's the subject matter rather than the actual film itself that creates this discomfort with the movie. No, is the, the film itself, because well, I've seen movies no, I'm just, where I'm just in... trying to straighten it out in my head what we're getting at here when we say it is uh, yeah, what it is. Yeah, it is a film where this where the entire focus of the film is the central subject. And yeah, and that is that is at its core what makes it an unpleasant film to watch. And all these other things increase that unpleasantness. But the fact is, is that it was intended to be an unpleasant film. Well, and the thing is, I've seen movies wherein they do have rape scenes that do not leave me unsettled the way that the rape scenes in this movie leave me unsettled. I think part of that is also just how much of that the actual rape itself is off screen and it's focused entirely on the faces of mm-hmm. either just a very tight close up of the person who's experiencing it or someone who's watching it. I mean, there's a lot of it where it's Junior. It's kind yeah. of like Junior's reaction of disgust at what his family is doing intercut with like the faces of like, say, Sadie and Weasel who are into it. Yeah. Mm. But that last one when uh, Crew Grapes Mary, that one is pretty brutal. Yeah, but again, it still doesn't show much. No, yeah, but just the two, their just reactions to the two, because you yeah. get the two of them in frame and you get their faces. And I think that's where it's like sinking into them that we're not doing the right thing here. It's interesting that Wes goes where he does with that. Mm-hmm. But I kind of like it. But I appreciate it. <laughs> I think the theme of this review is it's not like, it's appreciate. <laughs> yeah, I, I appreciate what this movie does, but I never want to watch it again. Yes, we're part of the Last House on the Left Appreciation Society. Do not like <laughs> us on Facebook. <laughs> Please do not like us on Facebook. Please do not like our Appreciation Society. Yeah. <laughs> I think my only problem with the revenge bit at the end is like the end of Nightmare on Elm Street. It's a little too Home Alone. Mm-hmm. Which is like, oh, we're going to put shaving cream on the floor. Or, oh, look, I, I'm going to completely wire up my door and carpet to electricity. It's interesting, but it ultimately doesn't do anything because crew yeah. gets over the floor really quick. He gets electrocuted at the door briefly, but then he kind of gets back up and keeps fighting. Mm-hmm. It was like, that was a lot of effort for something that really had little actual result. I do like the dad with the chainsaw, though. I actually really like the earlier scene with the dad down in the tool shed, just kind of like trying to figure out what he wants to use to kill these people with. Mm-hmm. You know, taking a few test swings with the wrench and yeah. getting the shotgun. And I, I like just how brutal a fight with him and Krug is. And I like that Krug gets the upper hand at first. Yeah. And then there's that final confrontation with Junior. What I like about Junior is that there's times when he's supposed to be funny that the actor kind of comes off like a stand-up comedian. It's a little forced. Mm-hmm. But when he has to be dramatic, he actually really sells it as this yeah. kind of dramatic, tragic figure. And that suicide scene is just great. Yeah, that was brutal. Mm. Well, I shouldn't say great, but it was well executed. Pun intended? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think Hi. so far, whenever we say something is great or something is good, yes. I we think mean, we just like, sort of automatically In a cinematic way here. and in an emotional way, but oh my god, this movie hurts us. <laughs> yeah. Like, this movie, it's just like... And then the dad with the chainsaw. Which was, yeah, it was pretty fantastic. Which came out a year before Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think with the chainsaw, my favorite thing there was that he slammed the door to try and stop the father with the chainsaw. And then he stands up against the door. Yeah. And he's got a chainsaw. And then he just hears the saw through the door and he's like, oh shit, just takes off. And I love that the sheriff shows up right as he buries the chainsaw in the guy. And And everybody's dead. At no point am I like, oh no, because they killed them. I'm like, yeah, well, you killed their father. With the police. Okay. They run through daytime. Right? Worst cops and into ever! The night. Into oh the night, God. right? It takes them that long to get from town to this house. And I assume it- gig, like, how did they know to go to the house? Because the car was parked near the house, but not quite at the And that it's the stupid excuse of, oh, you forgot to put gas in the tank. Yeah, like, really? Just, oh my God. Yeah, what kind of cops are you? I did like the bit with the car full of hippies. To, like yeah. pull over to help them and then drive off like fuck you pig we hate cops <laughs> yeah. i think i understand what they're trying to do there at the incompetence of law enforcement and how people have to take the law into their own hands but at the yeah. same time it's just so fucking ridiculous and it was also meant as moments of levity between the intensity but i think that actually hurts the intensity yeah, to go that silly 
Yeah, when you get like, to the point where the sheriff takes his hat off his head, throws it on the ground, and stomps like a he doesn't, yeah, and he stomps, and then he picks up his hat and dusts it off, and I'm like, <laughs> thank you, Jackie Gleason. Can we not, Obi? Can we please not? No, and this goes back, I think, to what I was saying at the beginning about there being something missing, or just you know, there was off. just this empty space, something off. Yeah. I don't think it was the inclusion of this humor because that I got, like you were talking okay. about, Noel, just the idea of you understood and we understand just sort of what role that humor was playing. And so mm-hmm. I don't think it was that at all. And I just feel like I need to point this out because okay. I imagine it sounded like at the beginning that I was totally overlooking the humor. I just felt like it needed to be cleared up. That's all. Okay. And I'm not saying that it's off because they put humor in there. I'm just Saying that, well, it's more the contrast. Yeah, they, I think they just misplayed the level of contrast and thus created a discordancy. Eventually, it becomes too much, wherein I'm like, this really horrendous thing. And then you're like, and now for something completely different. And I'm just like, how about no? There's times where the film feels more like a weird comedy with horrible moments in it yeah. than it does a horrible movie with weird moments of comedy in it. It sort of starts to feel like that's my boy. Oh, Adam Sandler. That. My boy crossed with Home Alone. What no, it's just that's my boy. Don't 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 bring Home Alone into this. It's a good movie. I need to see that's my boy at some point. You really don't. But and then also with the whole climactic scene, there's you know of course the mom going down and taking out Weasel's Weasel. <laughs> the little guy is like it's not little. He scared it. I love that bit where he gets a caught in the zipper. Yeah. Like, oh. oh, do you want me to jerk it? No, no, just do nice and slow. <laughs> And then I, lo- I love that, you know, that entire blowjob is done out of frame, except for the one shot where she's ripping into it like beef jerky. Mm. <laughs> That's probably the most visceral, most accurate description of that scene that I could think of. Here's yep. the thing, though. We never see him get killed because, I mean, yeah, you can get castrated and not die from it. I, I had, like, remembered in my head from when I saw this film, like, 15 years ago, that she had cut his throat instead of Sadie's. So, yeah, I was just kind of surprised that they just kind of left him rolling there on the ground. Well, he'll bleed out from that injury. You can bleed out from it, but it's not always guaranteed. Well, I think just the fact that he's kind of left out there. You have to remember, John Wayne Bobbitt got castrated and woke up three hours later and was still alive. Yeah, we're not going to talk about John Wayne Bobbitt. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the whole bit with Sadie. Was It almost felt like Sadie kind of disappeared for the climax for a while. You know, there's the bit in the bedroom where, you know, the lights go out and the shotgun goes off. And I'm saying, did Sadie die when the shotgun went off? Mm-hmm. And she's gone. And then, like, at the end of the sequence, she's suddenly there again and running outside. No, and see, this is another one of those parallels that I saw. Whereas Mary had that moment. She chose the water. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she had a prayer. She chose the water. Um, in absolute contrast, Sadie fell into it. And she was trying to escape it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't even see that as a parallel. I just thought, like, it's really weird that she even trips into the pool. I'm like, why would you even have a pool there? Why were you running near that? I, I didn't even see the, like, the contrast. I was just like, how did you even trip into that pool? I love that they have a pool when there's a pond, like, 20 feet away. Yeah, I'm like, A, who has well, it a is cleaner pool? water, but still. And then on top of that, how did you trip into that pool? Like, you, you had to have tried. You and were you didn't see her running <laughs> towards you with the knife while you were trying to climb out? And she keeps trying to climb out. And then, like, every time we cut back, she's trying. She's She's still trying. (laughs) Yeah. It's like she swims over the edge. And then we cut back, and she's swimming over the edge again. And then we cut back. And I'm like, okay, really? Are we? Okay. That was not the proper ledge to get the leverage. (laughs) And then there's the ladder right there. She's never trying to get out with the ladder. Actually, at one point she does. At first, when you first see her, she swims over to the ladder. And then we cut away, and we cut back. I don't have the and, strength of the ladder. I could use my strength on something that'll take up even more of it. Yeah, and then she's not at the ladder. I'm like, what the, okay, that's what we're doing now. My main point is I just think Sadie, for how prominently featured she is throughout the rest of the movie, I thought she was just a little kind of underused in the climax. How so? Well, she she just disappears, disappears for the majority of it. And then instead of like diving into the fight, she just like runs out the front door, falls into the pool, and the mom cuts her turn. Yeah, it's like she gets into a minor tussle and some leaves and then falls in the pool and gets her throat cut and that's it. Weasel, Junior, and Krug all kind of go out in spectacular ways that kind of tie into the themes of their characters. And she just kind of doesn't. Yeah. 
Well, what I think I, when I say how so, I mean more along the lines of a better question to ask was, okay, it was if underwhelming. used in the climax. Okay, no, if it is underwhelming, what do you think would have been an effective use or an effective way to kill her off? What do you think they could have done differently? I think and just having her put up more of a fight would have yeah. been more interesting because I she I think doesn't. having her be more involved in the fight, the initial fight with the father before he got the chainsaw, I think having her be more heavily involved in that. And then I would have it when the guy comes up with the chainsaw, she's like, fuck this. And she leaves Krug yeah. on his own. I think that would have been more satisfying. Yeah. I mean, it's like we have so much of the film setting her up as she's this animalistic woman who will beat people to death. Like she kicks a dog to death. When we have the actual fight in the climax, it's like she doesn't actually fight. She just kind of is like gone for half of it. And then, oh, there she is in the background. And then she runs away. Yeah. There was that moment where she's wrestling with the mother over the knife. Sort of, but I don't think the mother knew that the knife was there. Yeah, but the mother then like gets the upper hand on her pretty quickly, despite the yeah. fact that we've established at multiple points, Sadie is this brutal, animalistic, warrior woman. Yeah. Yeah, it's like she's supposed to be this badass, and yet not so much. It felt like there was that moment. I just wish that they could have done something more. It doesn't take the film down. It's more that she had this big buildup, and the payoff was sort of like, Meh, she's not that, it's like, eh, you ain't so tough. And I think the climax really didn't need any of the the electrified door or anything. Yeah, I didn't need that. I like that he's going around and like taking all the handles off the windows so no one can use the windows to get out. But then they didn't pay off that really either. Yeah. I think there was like one moment where Krug is trying to get out the window, but it's like, that was a lot of setup for not much payoff. Yeah. But this is the type of thing that I see in a lot of Wes Craven films where he'll like put a lot of focus on something. And then when it comes time to pay it off, it like, that's it. Yeah. Or it like pays off in a way that's like, okay. That's all you're going to do. Okay. Like Nightmare on Elm Street, this whole, I mean, we'll get to that. But just speaking on past memory of Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, this whole setup of a conflict in a girl's dreams. And then the entire climax is, oh no, she's going to pull him into her booby trapped home alone house. It's like, okay. I didn't see the film going there. And speaking of dreams, actually, to bring it back to oh, yeah. Last House on the Left, the dentist dream. Yeah, that was nice. <laughs> that was fucked up. Yeah. That was one thing I'll, I'll gladly say was great because I was, oh, yeah. that, that was the type of stuff Wes does best. Just these great little moments of just complete horror. Like it was fucked up, but it was also a really good scene. And just like, the way this... that scene was cut, you know, especially yeah. on the clank as he shoots up out of bed. Mm hmm. And removal seems to also be something of an image consistently used, too. I mean, we have the phallic insertion, particularly with knives, and even the literal... uh, That one's really... The knife thing is really obvious, though. Yeah, but when you have stuff like the removal of the teeth in that dream, when you have the removal of Phyllis's entrails after she's been killed, I think I made a note of a couple other things, but I can't quite see them right now. And at the end of the film, the dad reveals that he has a larger, more toothed mechanical phallus. (laughs) That's not funny. A phallus that can literally eat you. No, but so that insertion. <laughs> that's, that's not funny, Noel. No one's going to laugh at that. Yeah. Just, no. Well, no, so it's insertion and removal. And again, it's contrast. I was the only one who noticed that, wasn't I? Well, I don't know that it was entirely intended quite to that level, but I mean, something could be said. I mean, especially with the whole, the villains, there's the removal aspect of when the villains disembowel Phyllis, mm-hmm. which was actually a much longer scene. And I'm kind of glad they cut it down. Yeah. I was kind of giving them a Valerie Cherish, and I don't want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> And it was literally just saran wrap filled with jelly. It was mercifully short. Yeah. To the point where you weren't even sure. Oh, no, I knew what she had done. You could see when... um, And there is actually the full clip of that scene on the DVD where it goes on for like a minute as they're literally stringing her guts around. No, you can see Sadie reach into the the stomach wound and start pulling it out. And then they just kind of cut away. Perhaps it was my desire to not believe that was actually happening that kind of cut out this first second. And therefore it was only this... (laughs) <laughs> and that was one of those cases of Wes realizing the strength of implication mm-hmm. as opposed to actual demonstration. Mm. Or as his peons say, showing, not telling. <laughs> well, I, or it's te- uh, technically it's not really showing. It's only slightly it's teasing. Showing. Well, yeah. OK, yeah, there we go. Better way to put it. Mm. It's teasing, which makes it more blunt in the mind's eye. Mm hmm. 
because we can make it worse in our own heads than it actually is. Well, just the fact that you've murdered... It's, first of all, at that point, Phyllis had been raped. She'd been brutally stabbed. They stabbed her in the spine, and then yeah. her legs don't work, and she's just crawling away while bleeding out. It's yeah. like, Jesus. Yeah. And then okay. it's like, and you brutally then stabbed her for the lulls. And this is quite literally... And then they're literally they're, ripping her apart. Yeah, and it's like, and then you're ripping out her guts. I'm like, no, it, it's a certain, like, you don't have to show us everything because at that point, we already understand how brutal they are. This is just like the, that last little clip of Sadie just reaching in and pulling out just a little bit of the guts. It's just like, you know exactly how fucked up they are at that point. You don't need to see the entirety of that. Yeah, and I like that there are points where Wes realizes that it's a stronger film if he doesn't go as far as he intended to. Mm-hmm. Even if it means cutting down the scene of the removal of someone's intestines from a minute to, you know, just a few seconds. Just the yeah. suggestion that they did. Yeah, you don't need to show it when you just suggest it. Oh, yeah, and it. I, I've seen the full clip of, you know, when they're, like, literally roping out the intestines and all that, and it doesn't work as well. Then it feels... Um, Slightly comical? Not comical. It feels... What's Surreal? No, it's uh, ex not explicit, but... Exploitive? Exp yeah. It feels like they're giving in to the exploitive nature of the film instead of challenging it, like a lot of the film is. And it doesn't work as well, and I think with that suggestion there that they did what they did, it's stronger than just cutting around like, oh, Sadie's railing around guts in her hands, and look, mm -hmm. Weasel's flinging them up in a tree, and it's like, we don't, yeah, it's <laughs> we like, don't need to do it. And, and it's like with the sex, you know, did we need explicit, hardcore, penetrative sex shown to us to make the rape scenes brutal? when the brutality of the rapes is being sold so much better by not even really showing them at all. Yeah. I noticed that, too, because I'm like, the rape scenes are so brutal because of the fact that a lot of it is just the implied violence of the rape. I mean, even Phyllis's first rape is entirely off screen as we just hear the sounds and we push in on the distressed Mary in the background and Junior looking away. Mm -hmm. Interesting thing I noticed. When the girls are in the woods initially and they actually point out how beautiful the weather is and we see the falling leaves, for me, that actually seems... Okay, again, this could be me reading way too much into it and just seeing imagery that isn't there, like you guys have been accusing me of. But this idea of the following leaves as a foreshadowing of stripping down and the falling leaves as autumn as the precursor to death and just the idea of the removal of the leaves as parallel to the removal of their clothing, of their dignity, and of their very selves and lives. I think there's something to that. I think the autumn setting was just, you know, that's what the setting was at the time when they were able to shoot the film. Yeah. But I wouldn't be surprised if Wes, you know, took advantage of that. See, I'd go the complete opposite and go, I mean, I'm glad that you saw that, but I don't think that was, in fact, at all intended. I think that just they happened to luck out that this is when they were shooting it and this is what they ended up getting. But that's I don't think that, that was their original. Like, I don't think that. I think that's something that might have came about through the course of making the film, but I don't think it, I agree with you that I don't think it's something they set out intentionally. Well, it's just the reason I felt it was intentional or something was the fact that there was the actual verbal lines articulated that the leaves were falling and, you know, isn't autumn beautiful? I mean, I know I'm not yeah. quoting it directly, but... That might have not even been a line. That might have just and been... And that also thing. is there was a very improvisational nature to the film, but that doesn't mean that, you know, that isn't something that they caught on to. Well, and just the thing is, too, that once something has been made, you can read into it what you like. So even if it yeah. was their original intent. I, I do agree with Max's point about the stripping and redressing of the girls mm -hmm. being a, a common theme as part of their day. I mean, like, there's even that point there where Phyllis is like, look, it's cold. You guys aren't doing anything with us. Can I put my clothes back on? Mm -hmm. Oh, here's that list of the ideas of where removal was that consistent image. It was the teeth and the entrails. It was the necklace and the clothing that mm -hmm. were the other two major things that stood out of my mind as part of that image of removal. And that was the interesting thing about the necklace was that it wasn't taken from her. She freely gave it. Yeah. Yeah. She physically removed it, though. No, but she gave it, it to was him. It wasn't removed. To bring another thematically analytical word, it's a transference. Exactly. <laughs> Because she gave it to Junior trying to strike up some sort of friendship and trust with him. And and by giving him the name Willow. Yeah. Which, what the f- Okay. 
Well, and then when he died in, in his death dream, he got to go fight Bav Mordia with, with you know, Val Kilmer. <laughs> no, no, just no. He always wanted to be a wizard. Just no. Okay. And 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 what what's presented to him in Willow is an innocent baby who comes to him by the waters of the lake. Just no. Okay, no. 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 Hey, Matt gets to analyze her complete nonsense. I get to analyze mine. Yeah, but her nonsense is actually backed up. Yours is just blah blah blah. And hers isn't technically nonsense because she's backed it up. And I know, she- I'm joking. I'm joking. Don't sass me. <laughs> now is not the time to sass me. Plus, I could also see Junior growing up to be Warwick Davis. Wait, no, or growing, growing no. down technically. <laughs> a little tall. Because we had to go there. What? Got anywhere <laughs> it's not going you. <laughs> He's really tall. It's not not true. I'm thinking it. You're thinking it. Max thinking it. So, are we about ready to wind down on part one here? Or? been ready since we started talking about him. I don't want to yeah. talk about this. I'm done. I feel really uncomfortable and dirty. Any final thoughts on the last house on the left? I hate you. Mm. No, no, I think that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> One thing I, I noticed was, you know, there's the whole opening sequence where, you know, you have Mary in the shower with the translucent screen and the whole discussion of her breasts. It's interesting how he's sexualizing her in an innocent way in a way that kind of shows her innocence about being sexualized. Mm-hmm. I guess. Yeah. It's just some random thought I had. No, but you also pointed out towards the beginning here about how the women's breasts in general weren't sexualized throughout the film. They were in the screen, but it was their faces or just the conversation around them that was the focus. Whereas here at the beginning, like you're saying, her breasts become the focus. They become um, it's not mildly her sexualized. It's her nudity. Well, I think it's also no, no, to no, no, show... No, 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 With her dad, though. Well, there's that, but then there's also the discussion she has with breasts with Phyllis about how, oh, my breasts finally came in and now I feel like a woman. I think there's all that thing is to show that she's naive about sexuality. She's naive about, you know... I'm trying to put it in words. I think it's to show a naive a naivete. You know, it's it's naive, it's innocent, it's sexual, but it's naive and it's innocent about its sexuality. Mm-hmm. And thus her first actual sexual experience is of the most degrading and horrible thing you can encounter. And as a result, even the bad guys realize that they've just done this degrading thing to someone who is a naive innocent. That they've broken something. Yeah, they broke something. Use your words. Whereas Phyllis was someone who she's already has the more worldly experience. It's not to say that what was done to Phyllis isn't equally degrading, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't thematically in terms of what the film's themes are. She was someone who wasn't as innocent. And that wasn't used as a condemnation of her, but because through the fact that she has this experience, it doesn't hurt her as much. And so she's the one who keeps her wits about her. Yeah, she's the one who's much yeah, more stronger. Yeah, it gives her that advantage. Yeah. She was the one who was telling Mary, you know, just We just, just got to get through this, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or, you know, stay here when I run. Exactly. Make a break. I'll it. make a diversion so you can get away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just showing the contrast. I mean, because of that naive innocence, Mary is also a complete emotional wreck throughout most of experience, so she isn't able to think and process through as well as Phyllis is. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's not that the innocent is being victimized and the more worldly experienced one is being... It's just portraying more of a contrast. I mean, there is a nice balance there. Yeah. It shows like the two balance. different mediums. It's not condemning one. Yeah, without basically condemning Phyllis, like, oh, well, obviously you had it coming. Yeah. It's not like a Taylor Swift song. Yeah. yeah. Phyllis isn't condemned, and Mary isn't necessarily put up on a pedestal. Exactly. Or... And that's where a lot of, like, the intelligence of the character construction on terms of Craven's part. I like a lot of Craven's characters in his movies, and these are just really well-thought-out characters. Mm-hmm. Really fucked up, but well-thought-out. I think that's pretty much the last <laughs> thought I can come up with for the movie. Yeah, that, that's, let's just leave it there. Anybody else have anything else they want to bring up? Oh, you know what I realized that we kind of missed pointing what? out on the original Last House on the left and its comparison to the Virgin Spring. Oh, yeah. We forgot to talk about Virgin Spring. Okay. I don't know. Have you seen it, Mac? Or No, I have not. Have okay. you, Evie? I have seen the original Virgin, uh, the okay. Virgin Spring. Okay, I haven't. Yeah. So okay. what would you say the comparison is like? 
it's sort of like the same general plot, like the same general story structure, Mm -hmm. but not really. It's like young girl raped, murdered. They show up at the family's home. And actually the way that the family finds out in The Virgin Spring is that they try to sell them the clothes that they'd stolen. It's like some of the stuff that they'd stolen off the girl. And that's Mm -hmm. how they realize And the parents basically lock everyone into the little shack, I guess, and they kill them all off, including a child who is present at the rape and murder but doesn't actively participate in it. But it's just the idea of you didn't do anything to stop it. Not that he would have been able to do anything to stop it, but it's, you know, it's the ultimate revenge of like, well, you didn't even try, even though you are a small child and obviously there's nothing you could have done. And then at the end, they find the daughter's body and they pick it up and they find this spring that springs up from underneath her and they decide to build a church. And on what I read was, isn't it like in the dad after he kills everyone, he's like, will God ever forgive me? Mm -hmm. And they discover the spring, which is supposed to be God forgiving him. Yeah. Well, when they find the daughter's body, they discover the spring and they kind of and they decide that they're going to build a church. Your actions were justified. Yeah. Which I'm, yeah, it's sort of like it peters out. At I'm talking end. in terms of the theme of the movie, yeah. And it is actually... Um, I have yet to see a single Ingmar Bergman movie. Really? It's actually... Uh, the the original to. story is actually an adaptation of a Swedish ballad. Okay. So. See, now I feel like I need to go seek out the Swedish ballad just for the hell of it. Yeah. You can probably find it on Wikipedia. Though, you know, learn <laughs> Swedish... Well, down here in America, they have all of the Criterion movies on Hulu Plus, so I could probably oh, okay. watch it there. Frigging Hulu. Yeah, we don't have Hulu in Canada. Yeah, we hate you for it. So you know what? Short it. Yeah, sit it. Okay, I gotta go see what's on Hulu. Actually, I would also, I um, I would say in The Virgin Spring, young mm-hmm. Max von Sydow. So, yeah. Mm. Please do enjoy that. Anybody else have anything else they want to bring up? No, like I said, I think we've covered it. Yep. Yeah, we, we, we spent a lot more time talking about this one than I hoped we would. <laughs> All right, so I think that'll bring part one to a close. Thank you for joining us, Mac. Thank you for having me. Good night, Evie. <laughs> To read show notes for this and every one of our episodes, please visit IHateLoveRemakes.blogspot.com. The comment sections are open, so let us know what you think about the films discussed. I Hate Love Remakes is in no way affiliated with the copyright holders of the films discussed. All rights are reserved and no infringement is intended. I Hate Love Remakes is a Made of Fail production. Madeoffail.net. We were unpopular before it was cool.